1: Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. Welcome to Law Technology Now on the Legal Talk Network. This is your host, Bob Ambrogi. My guest today is Tom Bruce, the director of the Legal Information Institute at Cornell Law School in Ithaca, New York. This year is the 25th anniversary of the Legal Information Institute, my how time flies. And we're going to be talking to Tom about the history of the LII and uh, what they're up to now. So Tom Bruce, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, Bob. It's great to talk to you and um, thinking about this and I'm wondering how it's going to be possible for me not to sound like an old fogey in in talking about the origins of the Legal Information Institute. Because the world has so radically changed uh, since you guys got started that I'm worried about falling into sounding like, uh, you know, my grandparents talking about when I was a kid. But I wondered if you could maybe kind of set the stage for us for what the legal information world looked like uh, 25 years ago before the LII got started.
0: Now, first of all, Bob, I have to tell you that I, I share the same set of concerns <laughs> <laughs> about, about aging out of this. Uh, actually, it's funny because you're putting your finger right on, on one of the things that I think that I am actually proudest of and, and, and that I know that Peter Martin, my, my co-founder, is as well. Uh, When we came on the scene in 19 – well, when I first started working in law schools in 1998 and then leading up into 92 when we actually started the institute, it was very clear that it was not just that there was a commercial monopoly on legal information distribution, actually really in those days more of a duopoly between LexisNexis and, and what was then West Publishing but that there was a nearly complete intellectual monopoly as well it was you know no one outside those companies was really thinking about those issues very much nobody had data to work with there was really not much opportunity until the internet came along for anyone to say well hey we could try something different here uh it was just too expensive to do it's too hard to get your hands on source material there was no distribution mechanism really by which you could get it in front of the public and so You know, that was the state of things. You had two very large, very successful, uh, and actually very good commercial providers, but there was really no demonstrable alternative to whatever they chose to do. And for the most part, what they had chosen to do was go a mile wide and an inch deep. Lawyer-oriented legal information services have always had comprehensiveness as their first goal. uh, And that's a very expensive thing to maintain, and it doesn't leave you a lot of room to go deep on certain kinds of things.
1: Well, and you make this point, but their focus was on providing legal information to lawyers, but nobody was really thinking about making legal information available to the public at large.
0: Yeah, and you know, to tell you the truth, Bob, I think initially I'm not all that sure that we were either uh... which is to say it wasn't that we went into this with a huge sense of mission on behalf of the public much as much as our views on that have have evolved over a a long period of time it was that we wanted to play right i mean a lot of it was just hot rodding but we weren't hot rodding for long before we discovered that there was just this enormous sort of latent need for this stuff out there and that It didn't fall into the categories that you might have expected, and and it still does not, even now that more than 50% of the people who make use of legislative information on our site or on legislation.gov.uk or a number of others that we're familiar with, you know, the majority is now non-lawyer. So what we very quickly became aware of was that there was this very significant audience that was not lawyers and was not, people that lawyers imagine would use a system like ours which is to say uh you know quote unquote ordinary citizens uh, having episodic traumatic encounters with the legal system of one kind or another but was instead non-lawyer professionals uh people who were making continuous professional use of law uh but were not themselves lawyers so you know the obvious examples of, of people like that are police officers or journalists but you know uh, l- let your mind open up a little further and you start thinking about people like uh uh, hospital administrators looking at public benefits law, law enforcement training people, and you know, ultimately, pretty much anybody and everybody in regulated business, which is pretty much anybody and everybody in business.
1: Yeah, the other part of the uh, of the landscape twenty-five years ago that's significant here, I think, is that the internet wasn't really a thing. I mean, the internet was around, but the web, the internet as we know it today. The web had really only just started to kind of move out of the lab. The first graphical web browser hadn't really even been developed yet, I don't think, in 1992. I know you you developed one in 1993, and Mark Andreessen's browser came out in 1993, Mosaic. And this idea of getting legal information on the Internet... uh, hadn't really come along. I mean, there, there, there wasn't legal information on the internet at that point, or there, there might have been some rudimentary sources through FTP sites or whatever. But what we think of today as access to legal information, nobody had thought of at that point. And it seems to me that you and Peter were really pioneers in, in starting to think about that.
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think we can claim exclusive credit for that by any means. We were certainly very early to the web. We had about the, I want to say, the 30th web server in the world. And we, we had actually the first professionally oriented website that was not oriented toward high energy physics. You know, everything out there. We had the,
1: the first legal website, too.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, so... Peter had been working extensively at that point, uh, experimenting putting teaching materials and other kinds of resources, uh, statutory supplements for classes and that kind of thing, into CD ROM form. So hypertext was a thing that we knew about. And I remember sending a, a very early memo to the dean of the law school here. I think it had to do actually with buying my time out from my day job at that point, uh, that said that. Given the fact that the web was bringing this hypertext technology and that the Internet had this reach, we could see some very interesting things potentially going on in, in legal information distribution. But as I say, we started out hot-rodding. We put up portions of the U.S. code in Gopher, if, if, if you're old enough to remember that. Uh,
1: <laughs> I may be the me- only one listening yeah, to you right I, now. Know who, who, who
0: hears this who, who knows <laughs> that. Uh, you know we did that because it was a great format in which to do stuff that was essentially hierarchical and the statute book was like that and so we did it with title seventeen i, th- I think the web stuff was the third thing that we did we had we had done a series of cd-rom uh, statutory supplements for courses it was stuff like the federal rules before we ever did anything online but yeah i mean we saw that there was an opportunity there we had been preceded by Cleveland FreeNet was distributing Supreme Court decisions as early as I want to say it was pre-Hermes so it was it was like 1989 or so they were taking typesetting files they were taking ATEX files from the court and transforming those and and, and putting them online. Atex was a typesetting composition system uh, known to lawyers or or lawyers who were around at that time as Xyrite. That was a a word processing program that was actually based on, on Atex. So they'd done it, and there'd been a couple of other fitful efforts to distribute limited amounts of
1: stuff, but that was really about it. And Hermes, for those who don't know, was what?
0: Oh, Hermes was the Supreme Court's program for doing rapid distribution of Supreme Court opinions to a very, very limited population of subscribers. I think there have never been more than about 20. Uh, Most of them were major news organizations. So with legal publishers plus the New York Times plus a couple of other newspapers, we joined the subscriber roster, I want to say, in 94 or 95.
1: This was well before the Supreme Court ever had a website of its own. I think at least a decade before the court had its own.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the Supreme Court started working on their website around 98, 99. So we had had one up yeah. for six or eight years before they did.
1: Yeah. So what was the original mission and, and how did you get started? Where did the money come from? Where did the resources come from?
0: Uh, the resources originally came from a grant that we got through an organization called NCARE, the National Center for Automated Information Retrieval. And and one of the more amusing ironies of our existence uh is that we were actually paid uh... We, our, our startup was actually paid for by lexus royalties Uh <laughs> 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 had been started by lexus at a time when they were still in the in, in, having to very very heavily lobby judges to get them to release opinions to them mm-hmm. for online distribution and one of the sweeteners was they said well we'll put any royalties aside and use it to set up this foundation that will help with information projects in, in law and accounting i think it was so we had a pretty substantial startup grant from them that was, was enough to buy out my time and to fund us for, for a year or so. But, but really pretty much since then, that lasted us I think about two years. But ever since then, uh, we have been to varying degrees uh, on the books of the Cornell Law School. We are now mostly off, but it has been Cornell that has footed the bill for this thing uh, really right along.
1: I alluded to this earlier, but it's always fascinated me that one of the early things that you did was develop a web browser. I mean, that kind of tells you the state of technology at that point that you felt uh, obligated to do that. And I think it was, if I understood it, it was the, the first web browser for Windows.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, if you really want to know the truth, it was kind of a software development exercise in body shaming in, in, in some ways because we, <laughs> we saw no real probability that any of the players then working on web stuff who were largely in a heavily NSF-funded scientific environment that mostly lived in Unix and, and to the extent that it didn't live in Unix, lived on Macs, we didn't see any serious possibility that they would undertake development of a Windows-oriented browser for quite some time. And so we thought, oh, what the hell, we'll take a crack at it. And maybe if we do a good enough job, or even if we do a very bad one, we, we can shame somebody who knows what they're doing into <laughs> doing a good one, which I think we were ultimately successful at. I mean, there are still some things about our efforts that I value. I see some of those features coming back in browsers 20 years later. But yeah, it was, it was essentially a, a gambit to get them to take the Windows audience more seriously because we knew that there were no Unix desktops and very few Macs in law firms at that point. That's less true now than it was then, but I st- I think the preponderance are still Windows machines.
1: So 25 years later, mm-hmm. what have we become? What is the Legal Information Institute today?
0: Well, uh, it's an interesting question. We're, we're a number of things, but what I think we mostly are, and, and it is what we've always intended to be, which is first and foremost a creative space in which to work on legal information distribution problems, particularly for non-lawyer audiences, but with lawyers there as well. I mean, we, we think about everybody. So how has that shifted? I don't think that 25 years later, at least in the United States, we have a problem with what I would call legal information availability. Lots of people can put legal information online. Many people have. It's a matter of time before the the output of pretty much every court in the United States, every legislature in the United States is available. And, yeah, I know that there are people who will raise questions about copyright barriers and that sort of thing. But from a technical point of view, there's nothing standing in the way, and it's reasonable to expect that within a very few years, uh, everything that anybody could possibly want will be somewhere on the web. What there isn't is a real move toward accessibility, and that I think is where we're mostly concentrating now, and that is partly a matter of quote unquote improving search, but really, Improving discoverability and improving integration across collection boundaries, across governmental boundaries, across inter-branch boundaries. I mean, one of the things that I think that we here have thought about far more than anyone else are the problems of getting people to navigate fluidly between statutes, regulations, and judicial opinions. The non-lawyer audience is a little bit different that way, right? Or, and, and even right. some lawyers, right? Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are primarily concerned with regulations and who are interested in statutes as a source of authority for those regulations and are interested in judicial opinions as interpretations of those regulations, but they really start with regs. And their questions basically revolve around compliance. So the kind of work we're doing now is, for example, a project of Sarah Frug's that's been underway for a couple of years is to use natural language processing techniques to identify and determine the scope of Statutory and regulatory definitions so that we can go through the entire statute book, the entire CFR, and mark up all the defined terms. Because after all, when it comes to compliance, definitions are very, very, very fundamental. It's, you know, does this apply to me? Well, you know, look at the definition, and it may not be a sort of intuitive definition. The other kind of thing that we're working on is linking law to resources outside of law, mostly involving the kind of stuff that the law is regulating. A recent experiment, for example, was to go through everything in the CFR having to do with veterans benefits, find all the medical conditions, and link them to the organizational system for medical literature such that you can now click on the medical condition and find effectively all the scientific papers at NIH that have to do with that condition. So we're starting to do that with more and more stuff. And honestly, In one sense, that's very different from what we were doing in 1992, but it's also not. One of our software developers asked me not long ago, well, why are we doing all this stuff if we're not sure that anybody's going to make use of it? And I just looked at them and said, in 1992, we weren't sure that anyone was going to click on the links.
1: Well, and it sounds like you're starting from your, uh, your hypertext roots and extending it as far as it can go. It sounds very much like where you started in some ways.
0: No, no exactly. I mean, there's still that challenge to meet. And I'm not completely sure what people will actually do with this. I do know that it will help to facilitate search engine discovery if we do. Because all of those, uh, you know, Google is now taking those kinds of authored connections, just as it always has other kinds of links, uh, very seriously in how it does search engine uh, presentation. So, you know, uh, the other thing we'd like to be able to do by that means is to give people a 360-degree view of all of the legal avatars of a particular substance or process. Our poster child for that is sudefedrin. We would like to pop up an info card on which you can find all the ways in which the legal system relates to Sudafetrin. And you think, well, you know, so why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it's the basis of any number of over-the-counter medications that are regulated in the way that over-the-counter medications are regulated in terms of, you know, manufactured distribution at pricing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it is also a precursor for the manufacture of methamphetamine and heavily regulated by the DEA. You know, So you really like if, – if you are a sudefedrin guy for whatever reason, a manufacturer or a wholesaler or what have you, you would really like to know, uh, okay, in how many places does the legal system hit uh, hit my product? And that's the kind of stuff we're trying to enable.
1: It's really fascinating. Something that uh, I would hope that a lot of listeners to this show are aware of the Legal Information Institute. What they might not be aware of is that you've spawned uh, – well, I don't want to call them copycats because that sounds derogatory, but you've spawned uh, LIIs all over the world.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the first of the party were were the Canadians followed by the Australians. And those two systems are, are remarkable in that they have evolved into the de facto national legal information providers for Canada and Australia, respectively. Yeah. Uh, Not far behind them, though, are probably 20 more that actually use the LII in their name that are national resources for for distribution of of legal information. Uh, Many, many of them in places that really have never had any other means of access, commercial or otherwise. So, for example, Much of sub-Saharan Africa with the exception of South Africa was completely outside the scope of the commercial publishers in any meaningful way for a long, long time. There literally was nothing. I remember sitting through a conversation with a a high court judge, a Supreme Court judge from Kenya at one point almost 20 years ago, uh, where she said, well, you know, the problem is that nobody has access to precedents and so lawyers pull out their favorite ones sort of out of their hip pocket. And only very rarely do they make them up. <laughs> Good. <laughs> right? I mean, that that was the level of problem that they were trying to solve in Kenya. And, of course, yeah. they've done that they've done that very, very successfully, as, as have many, many others.
1: Yeah. I know that we talked at one point when you were uh, experimenting a little bit with a variation on crowdsourcing, I guess, to help uh, kind yeah. of populate uh, some of the content on your site, in particular with regard to WEX, the uh, legal encyclopedia. Uh, what's the status of that? What's going on with that?
0: It's it's creeping along in a sort of desultory way. We have been under resourced personnel wise. To be honest with you, one of our problems is that we're we're, we're having difficulty at, at Cornell at this point. The whole university is having having trouble, it seems, hiring uh, sufficient numbers of software engineers. I don't think that's a <laughs> an uncommon complaint uh, yeah. e- either here or elsewhere. And so we've been a bit under strength and a bit held up on really opening the floodgates on it because we haven't been able to uh, finish some of the subsystems involved. But I think that within the next six months or so, we're going to see another surge there. In the meantime, we've just been populating it very, very slowly with stuff. We've got kind of a new impetus in that direction. I don't know if this has come to your attention through any of the, of the, the stuff we shoot out into the world, but our traffic this year has gone up 25%. Yeah, I did not know that. And all of it is interest in matters that private uh, – really, it's about concerns that private citizens have with the federal government. So ton of looking at immigration statutes, for example. The day that the immigration ban came down the first time actually in January 30th and 31st, we had the highest traffic levels on the site that we had had since the Bush v. Gore opinion came down in 2000 and we were the only ones who had it. So there's just a huge upsurge of citizen interest in what government is doing and what the statutory basis for it is. I heard a story on NPR this morning that was actually a very good story, but for the fact that the reporter was trying to skate around the question of, well, how do executive orders impact statutes, which they sort of don't. in in some ways but you know there's an unprecedented level of interest in that kind of stuff and, and to circle back to the question you actually asked me I, I think we're gonna be devoting a lot of a lot of attention just over the next couple of months in, in burnishing what we have by way of things like backgrounders for journalists or people who are who are actually curious about these issues and that's one of the advantages of being where we are uh, we, we have law students available to us we have faculty expertise and so we're able to make that content you know if, if, if we focus on it and this is certainly a very Good reason
1: to focus a piece of news that came along last year was that you've become the new home for the uh, Oye archive uh, scotus recordings and materials yep uh, can you uh i'm not sure everybody knows what that is or what that means i mean could you fill us in a little bit on what that is and what you're doing about that now
0: Okay, so what Oye is is, you know, I'm I'm honestly sitting here uh, blanking on when it was actually started, but not long after we were. I mean, uh, 1996,
1: Jerry Gold- I think. Yeah, Jerry <laughs> Goldman who,
0: who started it up at that, that time at Northwestern. I'm
1: cheating because I have an article in front of me, but
0: uh, he was he was early to the party anyway, and ran it at Northwestern successfully for many years. Then it moved to Chicago kind of a few years back, and and with Jerry's retirement, he was looking for a safe, secure, and stable home for it, and so it came to us. Partly through Jerry's uh, generosity and and partly through generosity from our friends at Justia, Tim Stanley and and their crew. Uh, They had actually been providing the technical infrastructure for it for several years at the time of transfer. We're still in the process of figuring out how exactly we want to make use of it in the long term. What it is, of course, is a complete archive of all the Supreme Court oral arguments. uh, Back to, I want to say, around, I think we just missed Brown v. Board. I think it goes back to like 55 or 56. Very, very useful for scholars, very, very interesting to political scientists and other kinds of people with, with deep interest in the court. And interestingly enough, apparently, very much of interest to uh, theatrical people as well. Uh, <laughs> the, the last
1: interesting to you because you have a theatrical background. Or-
0: I do. And uh, I got an email one day from Jerry saying, well, there's this guy uh, out at Portland Rep who they're doing Ro- the, the Roe play, the Ro- Roe v. Wade play, and they want permission to use the audio recordings. Uh, can you give him a call? And I was quite surprised to find myself talking to a classmate from drama school <laughs> 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 who said, and by the way, Berkeley Rep and, and the arena are doing it as well. So, you know, we're happy to facilitate that kind of thing. I say that partly because you're right. It's it's very appealing to me given my background, but it's also just a, a, a sort of a nod to how wide the reach of this stuff really is. I mean, the thing that I keep being touched by time and time again is just how much interest there is in legal material uh, of whatever kind from how many places and how deep that interest is. Because I think it goes well, well beyond, it certainly goes well beyond anything that Peter and I imagined in 1992. And I certainly think it goes well beyond anything that most specialists imagine as the audience or, or, or the market for this stuff.
1: The LII is often associated with like what people would call, I guess, the free law of movement, what do you see as the significance of that movement, if it's a movement at all, and where does it stand? What does it mean right now? I mean, there's so much legal information online right now, what does it mean to talk about access to free law?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I <laughs> I, am, I I am, sense a certain uh, suspicion of movements in your voice, Bob, and I am as suspicious of them as, as they are, and in fact, had it really been left up to me, I don't think I would ever have identified us as a movement. Um, I am told by a lot of our friends who operate, actually, let me let me go back. Ten years ago, five years ago even, I was told by friends of ours who operate in places like Namibia or Ghana or uh, now in the Middle East or in the stands that there actually is a tremendous validating effect for someone who is approaching a government official saying, hey, you know, can you turn over the data for... All of the judicial opinions of the high court, there's tremendous value there in being able to say, look at all these other places that are doing this. So for many years, the existence of a movement that identified itself as a movement was a kind of validating force that really did help people in out-of-the-way places and and some not-so-out-of-the-way ones get things started. It it had a validating effect. These days, honestly, I think I would agree with you. I'm
1: not sure I said that, but that's (laughs) okay.
0: (laughs) I think the movement, per se, is really sort of trying to figure out, you know, what next in in, in terms of that kind of action, if only because – you know, there's a I, – I wish I could think of the case. I never can. But there's an Oliver Wendell Holmes opinion in which he compares the judiciary to a couple of little boys who jump out in front of the parade going down Main Street. He was talking about the relationship between the judiciary and society. So the little boys jump out in front of the parade and they go along leading the parade until the parade decides to turn right and they don't. And to some extent, that's the sense in, in which the free access to law movement has led a, a wider movement of open access to law. They've, they've been like the little boys out in front of the parade. I think, I think things were headed that way anyhow. And I think that now, frankly, the LIIs and people like us are a little bit of a, a, a tail on a, on a much bigger dog that, that consists largely of government free access distribution to stuff. A year ago, I would have been quite adamant on the point that the day for that had sort of come and gone. Uh, more recent events persuade me that there are still very, very ample reasons to want to see sources of government information in general and legal information in particular that exist outside of government.
1: You've been running a series of posts on the LII blog under the theme of 25 for 25, uh, representing uh, your 25th anniversary and uh you have one uh, your co-founder peter martin has one there have been several others peter martin's wraps up with four questions that that he says that have been uh, critical and recurring ones for the lii and uh, one of those was the question of whether the lii should work in consort with any of the increasingly numerous commercial and public players in this field and if so on what terms what's your answer to that question
0: I think there's a very broad scope of stuff that you talk about under working with. Uh, we have all manner of relationships with outside entities, some of which are commercial and some are, of, of which are not. I mean, as, as as you well know, Justia is the closest thing to an open access provider that you can, a nonprofit open access provider that you can be and still turn a profit. They're kind of in a symmetrical relationship with us, not too far uh, over the commercial line, just as we are not too far over the nonprofit line. Right. Uh, we do all manner of scientific and technical cooperation with commercial operations and with people who are cooperating with government. We have a, a long series of informal collaborations and consultations over the last couple of years with MITRE Corporation, which is, you know, as, as you know, it's a nonprofit that does consulting uh, largely for government agencies on efficiency stuff. We've done work for uh, for Library of Congress, we have a very cordial relationship with Fastcase that has occasionally resulted in some data exchanges. So, you know, there, there's a wide range of stuff there. We've done technology licensing and so forth and so on. So, you know, there, there are many, many, many things possible.
1: Yeah. Another of Peter's questions is how to continue to innovate while maintaining the information services essential to holding and growing the LII's audience. Is that something you continue to wrestle with?
0: Oh, yeah. It's a never-ending struggle. Some of that is just the usual case of a bunch of people with a lot of good ideas whose eyes are a little bit bigger than their stomachs. And I, I, you know, in in some ways, I hope that's a curse we will always have. (laughs) It's a few more ideas than we can actually do something with. Uh, To some extent, it's a product of our institutional position. You know, it's an odd thing to be doing in a law school, although we are also, uh, we also very much benefit from our relationship with the law school and, and, and from our relationship with the computer and information science programs at Cornell. Uh, we make use of uh, probably right around 20 masters of engineering students every year in doing the kind of work we've been doing with machine learning and NLP. These are all guys who are, uh, guys I say, that, but it's, it's mostly women actually, who are, who are touching down between careers at you know Cisco and, and careers at Amazon uh, to pick up a master's degree. And they're fantastic. So we, we benefit greatly from that. It is a challenge for us to maintain the kind of pace that we have been in the past. In 1992, just to, to put bookends on this thing, Peter Martin could sit down on a snowy afternoon with, you know, two pesos vitaco Cabana and mark up a Supreme Court opinion in HTML, be the first person on earth to have done that, get Internet-wide attention for it the next day, and, and go on about his business. Uh, these days,
1: Internet-wide attention wasn't very wide in those yeah, days. Yeah, I know it was
0: about six guys. but uh, <laughs> still good. You know, yeah, but these days, in order to do something that makes a comparable splash, we're talking about investments of three years of time from teams of ten and twelve masters of engineering students, plus uh, staff software developers, and so forth and so on. So it's got to be a there's more overhead involved, and the challenges are greater. But on the other hand, we're tackling really big problems that we never would have thought would have been within our grasp, you know, a quarter century
1: ago. Well you discussed some of the projects that you're currently working on and, and with reference to what you just said, what should we expect from the Legal Information Institute in the in the coming years?
0: Well, you know, I, I think it's going to be what, what I like to think of as our usual mixture of stuff. Some of it will be large, bold attempts like the definitions work, like the work on entity linking that I was talking about, that are just, um, they're big projects. We're doing them across large amounts of material, and and they are, uh, to us at least, somewhat stunning in in, in their breadth and what they attempt. Some of them are going to be uh, where I suspect our bread and butter has often been which is in being just a little bit smarter about the way that people are using this stuff than other people have been. So for example, one of the things that's sitting in my IDE right now, my programming environment, is a very, very simple feature that will take the Federal Register's list of sections affected on a daily basis and actually pin down what has been affected to the specific subsection that has been altered. And you think, well, why would anyone care about that? And I will remind you that Section one of Title 26 of the CFR runs to 13 printed volumes. And yet, if you look at the list of sections affected because you're trying to track a legislative issue or a tax issue or a regulatory issue, uh, that is all the help you would get. (laughs) So, we look around for little opportunities like that to just make things functional with electronics that were never functional, were never all that functional in print. And if you look at a lot of the finding aids for federal statutes and federal regulations. There's work there for us to do uh, for as long as we want to do it.
1: <laughs> Tom, I've held you longer than I promised I would, but uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with respect to the LII that we, we haven't had a chance to talk about?
0: Well, uh, no, no, Bob, you, you have been your usual thorough self. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure this is the vehicle to do it, but I would certainly like to say thanks to the 32 million or so people who used us last year. Uh, and and encourage them to continue to do so and to to hope that we can continue to surprise them with a few magic tricks.
1: Well, I hope all 32 million of them will download this episode and listen to it because that would be very good for our advertising. Yeah, and if they'd
0: send send me (laughs) a buck, I wouldn't object either.
1: (laughs) I didn't even ask you about support. I mean, do you look to users to help support the site?
0: we do uh, we do we run a uh, large fundraising appeal in in December we also run one uh, close to the end of the Supreme Court term but you know you can go there and donate anytime we've been moderately successful at that I, I, I wish I could say we had we had been more so uh, it's interesting trying to do that we look very much toward Wikipedia for guidance with what they've done because I think they've been very successful but they've done it with a, a much larger user base than we have so User support now accounts for, I want to say, just under 20% of our budget.
1: Well, I I would, for one, thank you for everything you've done. I I think the world of legal information today... Might not be what it is had you not kind of set things in motion. I, I think you're being a little bit modest and not acknowledging the extent to which you did set a lot of this in motion. Uh, you really were. Maybe you don't like the word pioneer, but you guys really, really were pioneers, really were trailblazers at the time. And it's it's uh, just been phenomenal what you've done over the years. And I applaud you for that, for 25 years of success.
0: Well, that's very kind of you, Bob. I mean, my feeling has always been that it—you know—it's steam engines when it comes steam engine time, and I think sooner or later somebody else would have done it. But we've always been pleased to be the first.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's good. So, Tom, thanks a lot, and uh, congratulations, uh, and uh, best wishes on the next 25 years.
0: Oh, thanks. It was a pleasure. Good to talk to you. Good talking to you.
1: And uh, that wraps up this episode of Law Technology Now. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody at the Legal Talk Network for uh, helping produce the show. See you next time.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. I bet you didn't think about
1: running a business when you were in law school. But now that you have your own practice, you're constantly looking for tips on marketing, accounting, practice management, and so much more. I'm Christopher Anderson,
0: and you can get expert business advice on my podcast, The Unbillable Hour, found on LegalTalkNetwork.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.